Welcome to the Forency Podcast. Forency.us is a language training website for Hebrew, Arabic, and Russian designed specifically for intermediate to advanced learners. Our daily lessons prepare you to read real foreign language news articles and listen to actual foreign language media on a wide variety of subjects to put you on the path to language mastery. In this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Aaron Rubin, who is the Melvin and Leah Bank Professor of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies, Jewish Studies, and Linguistics at Penn State University. Professor Rubin is one of the leading scholars in modern South Arabian languages, and in this episode, we discuss his research on Jabali and Mehdi. In our talk, we discuss the history and development of these languages, how they conform us of other ancient Semitic languages, and their current states. I had a great time speaking with him, and I hope you enjoy the show. I'm here today with Professor Aaron Rubin, who's the Malvin and Leah Bank Professor of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies, Jewish Studies, and Linguistics at Penn State University. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Alex. So I came across your work when I was doing some research into ancient Arabic, and I found that you've done a significant amount of research into two modern Southern Arabian languages called Mehri and Shehri. I'd love if you can give me a high-level overview of what those are and, and why you took an interest in it. Sure. Mehri and Shahri, which is also called Jabali, are part of a group of languages called modern South Arabian, which are a sub-branch of the Semitic language family. And the six languages in the modern South Arabian group are Mehri, Shahri, or Jabali, Sokotri, Hobyot, Harsusi, and Bathari, all are spoken in either Oman or Yemen. And all of them are only modern languages, meaning that they've only been attested in the last 200 years or so. And none of them are written languages. They're only spoken, although now with computers and text messaging and, and Facebook and things, they're being written a little bit more. So when we say they're modern their title is Modern South Arabian Languages. They really are ancient languages. It's just that... Sure, they, they have a long history, but we only know of them in modern times. So unlike, say, Hebrew or Arabic or several other Semitic languages which are tested in antiquity, these languages are tested only in the last two centuries. Right. They're just as old as Hebrew and Arabic, of course, but only known recently. And I'd like if you can briefly talk about, if it's possible to talk about this briefly, the emergence of Semitic languages. So where they emerged from initially, how they spread, and then how these two languages fit into that. We don't know exactly where they began, probably either somewhere in Arabia or possibly in the Horn of Africa, Ethiopia, that region. There are different theories, and they must have diverged sometime in the 5th or 4th millennium CE. The earliest attested Semitic language is Akkadian, around 3300 BCE, something like that. And by that point, Akkadian and the ancestor of Hebrew uh, and others already were different, so they must have been diverging for hundreds or, or even thousands of years before that. But we don't know exactly where they came from, but they spread or they, they are tested in Ethiopia, in southern Arabia, greater Syria, Iraq, so across the whole Near East is the sort of Semitic homeland. And when were the two languages we're going to be talking about today, Mehri and Shahadi, when were they first discovered and, and how old do we think they are? 
They were first discovered by Europeans in the 1830s. The British stopped in an island called Socotra in the Indian Ocean, which is on the way to India, and they uh, were investigating establishing a, a, a naval base there or a place to stop over on the way to India. And a couple of gentlemen in the British Navy recorded some words in Socotri and also in Mehri and published them in the late 1830s. Although of the six languages, three of them were not known until the 20th century. So a few were discovered in the 1830s, 1840s, and then a couple others in the 1930s, and then one only in the 1970s. How old are the languages, you asked? As old as any Semitic language. We don't know at what point they began to diverge from other forms of Semitic, but probably at least 3,000 years ago, I would say. Mm -hmm. And even though the part of their name is South Arabian languages, just to be clear, they're not a dialect of Arabic. They're a unique, separate language. Correct. The name is rather misleading. They're not a type of Arabic. They're not any closer to Arabic in terms of their genetic history than they are to, say, Hebrew or Aramaic. To make it more confusing, there are also another uh, set of languages called Old South Arabian by some scholars. These are the languages used by the ancient Arabian kingdoms of Sheba and a few others in and around Yemen. Languages tested only, almost only through inscriptions. And uh, they, despite their name being Old South Arabian, are not the ancestors of what we call modern South Arabian. So you're correct that Mehri and Shahri are not dialects of Arabic, although they've been in close contact for so long. There's a lot of Arabic influence right. in those languages, a lot of borrowed vocabulary especially. And what first drew you to start researching these? Why were they of interest to you? Well, when I was in graduate school studying about Semitic languages, these were kind of the, the last unknown group. There had been some publications but they were not well-known. Some still are not well-known. And so they didn't really make up uh, part of our curriculum. And then around 2008, I think, I met a French scholar named Antoine Lonnet, who had gone to Yemen in the 80s several times and done fieldwork on Mehri especially, and uh, also Sakotri. He started telling me about these languages and and all the work he had done, and I just became really interested to learn more. And there had been some texts published in Mehri, and I started trying to read them. And when I discovered there was no grammar out there to refer to, I decided to write one. So really, it was um, just because there was so much to do. There was so little written on these languages. There had been no real grammatical description in 100 years. And so I felt it was an area in which I could make a contribution. Coming from studying, say, Hebrew, which I love, there's less to do. It's been very well studied. There are dozens of grammars and dictionaries. So I wanted uh, something more of a challenge. So I'm glad you brought that up because it was a question that I wanted to circle back to later on in the discussion, but we should touch on it now. So, you know, when we're looking at these two languages who have very ancient roots like Hebrew, but they're not very well documented. What can they tell us about some of the modern 
Semitic languages that, that exist now or that are in wide use, but maybe we don't know much about how they originally sounded or things that may have been lost. What can modern South Arabian languages tell us about the ancient languages? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Well, if we look at the sounds of modern South Arabian, for example, just by chance, they happen to preserve more faithfully than any other Semitic language uh, the sounds that we reconstruct for ancient Semitic. So when we look at Biblical Hebrew or Akkadian or Aramaic in their ancient varieties, we don't know exactly how they sounded. There are some, there's ancient texts that I believe in, in Greek that provide some pronunciations, but they're still not as exact, correct? Yeah, we, we have clues to their pronunciation from loanwords into Greek and from spelling errors that they make, for example. Mm-hmm. But there are certain sounds that uh, we don't know for sure how they were pronounced. The best example is the letter seen in Hebrew. Seen in the later reading traditions is pronounced like Samich. It's pronounced like a regular S. Mm-hmm. They must have been different sounds because they're spelled differently in ancient Hebrew. Later Hebrew, they confuse Samich and Seen, which means they must have been pronouncing the same. And if you look at loan words into Greek, they sometimes wrote words that had Hebrew seen with an L in Greek. So the Hebrew word kasdi, meaning chaldean in Greek, has an LD, just like chaldean. Hmm. And so scholars had hypothesized that this ancient Hebrew scene must have sounded something like L, had an L-like sound. And in fact, in modern South Arabian, the cognate letter of Hebrew scene is a voiceless L, a lateral fricative sh. So what we assume to have been the pronunciation of seen in ancient Hebrew has been confirmed by the pronunciation of, of that letter in modern South Arabian. Interesting. Yeah. So to, to get into a little bit about the development of, I guess we should just start with one rather than unpacking both of them at the same time. But okay. if we were to start with, with Shahari, which is also called Jabali, mm-hmm. tell me about how, how that language developed in, in the role that the landscape and the lives of the people played in, in the vocabulary of the language and, and how it's spoken? Well, we don't know much about its history, prehistory, but the speakers of Jabali have historically been camel herders and not quite Bedouin, but have lived a particular lifestyle. And so their, their language um, and their their oral histories and their stories often revolve around their traditional lifestyle and, and their camel culture. And so there are a lot of very interesting words pertaining to that lifestyle, if that's what you're referring to. But as far as the development of the language, the grammar and the sounds, that's really independent from their lifestyle, I think. And what about the landscape? So Jabali in Arabic is means mountainous, right? It means yeah. Mountains. What role did where these languages are spoken, play, and, and how they were preserved. Right. The area of Oman in which Jabali and, and Mehri are spoken, the Dofar region in the south of Oman, and Mehri is spoken in the eastern part of Yemen, the Al-Mahra governorate of Yemen. Those regions are quite isolated from the rest of Arabia. They're quite different in their topography. They're actually quite lush in the rainy season. But the mountains really kept uh, that region separate from the rest of Arabia. Of course, Islam came very early, but 
the isolation of that region is certainly why the natives preserved their languages for so long. It was only really in the last couple of centuries that that region was opened up to the wider world. When you started doing your research into both these languages, did you travel to the region to do some field work? No, I wanted to, and I, I had plans to. The Arab Spring happened in 2012. That kind of derailed my plans. And then for other reasons, I just never was able to make it. So what I did was I found speakers of Jabali in the U.S. through the consulate. I found mm. several college students that were here from Oman. Interesting. Being in, in South Carolina and in Florida. And I went there and, and spent several days with them, recording them and, and eliciting paradigms and vocabulary items. So I did field work, but not in Oman, unfortunately. Right. What was their reaction to you when, when you initially reached out and then when you arrived? Very enthusiastic. They were very, very happy to share their language and talk about it. Uh, I think they were surprised that I knew what their language was mm-hmm. called and anything about it. But they were very lovely people and, and very willing to share stories with me. And how do you even start unpacking that? How do you, when you sit down with them, you only have them for a limited amount of time. Where do you decide to start? Yeah, it was a challenge. I really had to make uh, efficient use of my limited time with them. So before I met with them, I had written part of the grammar and I, I knew a lot about the language and I knew where the gaps were. So I knew, for example, that uh, there were certain verb forms or certain types of types of verbs that I was missing, the past tense or the subjunctive tense. And I, I came with lists of questions and I also had to figure out how to elicit things indirectly sometimes. Because when I would say to them, I, I can't say what's the feminine of this adjective or what's the plural. I say it's, it's a red shoe, but well, how do you, if it was a boat, what would you uh, figure out ways? Mm-hmm. It didn't always work, but the best way to get data is just to record them telling stories or talking because often the forms they would use naturally were not the same as what they would give me if I asked them directly. And they had to think That's interesting. That's um, very similar to what Professor uh, Jeffrey Kahn told me when he was documenting uh, the last Aramaic speakers all all around the world. He would just sit down start recording them and then ask, you know, he would usually ask them to start telling a a folk story or of that sort. Jeffrey is actually one of my idols. And I think I I got into writing grammars of these languages in part to emulate him. Mm -hmm. He does amazing work. The big difference between his work and my work is that he worked with much older speakers right. that had no teeth and had other kinds of issues. My speakers were 18, 19 years old. So my problems were they, they wanted to sleep in until noon. And right. <laughs> they wanted to be on their phones and texting their right. friends. Right. <laughs> yeah. So is it possible for you to recall what made the, the biggest impression on you when you sat down with them and things that, that came out of those discussions that you weren't expecting initially? I think that the biggest surprise was one time I had met with two young men. They were 18 or 19 years old. They were from different towns. One in the west of the Dofar region, just by the Yemeni border, and one east of the major city called Salala in the region. So maybe, be, I don't know if it's 30 miles apart or 40 miles apart, but not that far from each other, but different parts of that province. And the amount of times they disagreed on answers to my questions kind of surprised me. Hmm. Say, how do you say this? Or, you know, how would you say uh, 
I went, how would you say you went? Or how would you say I want to go? I, I tried to list some form and they would argue what was the correct form. When we think about languages like English or French, there's usually one right answer, you know, for uh, the plural. And as men, that's the answer. But uh, just two people couldn't agree. Sometimes I think because of different dialects, which was interesting, but also because just there's no standardized form of Jabali or of Mehri. Right. So there is no one right answer to any question. Were there any um, yeah. vocabulary words that, that you discovered that, that surprised you in terms of their similarity to a current word in, in Arabic or a current word in Hebrew that, that you wouldn't have thought would have still carried over? Not that I can recall. There's no end to how many words you can elicit. There, there are dictionaries of Mehri and Jabali, mm-hmm. but just in a few days, the amount of words that came up, uh, we went out for dinner and, and I had oysters and he said, oh, in, in Jabali that's called this. And it was not the dictionary or, or just words came up all the time. And it made me realize how many words must still be out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, there definitely are words waiting to be heard that will provide cognates to Hebrew words or Arabic words. It's back to your earlier question about how these languages can inform our study of ancient languages. There definitely are words in, say, biblical Hebrew whose meanings are obscure and they can be informed by uh, words we find in modern Semitic languages. So things do come up here and there. I can't think of any examples of words that right. surprise me. And are there other scholars looking, like studying that topic specifically? So breaking down the dictionaries that exist for, for these two languages and seeing what they can discover and how can it, it can inform us of these other ancient languages? Not specifically. There are scholars working on uh, dictionaries, but not specifically looking at cognates, right. but more trying to preserve these cultural words I mentioned that are slowly disappearing as the regions become more modern. I want to go back a little bit and just ask initially, why did you take an interest in Semitic languages at all when you decided to build your career in academia and, and study these languages? Why Semitic languages? That's a good question because I studied Hebrew when I was in high school on my own. When I was about 15 or 16, I started learning Hebrew. And then I studied Arabic during the summer, one summer when I was in college, I, I did Mulpan in Israel. And when I got into linguistics, I first was working mostly on Indo-European languages. And I didn't really see a future there. I wasn't interested in German, say, or in Latin and Greek, especially. And so my interest in Hebrew and Arabic led me to study more about the Semitic language family. And I wanted to study Akkadian and, and Aramaic, which I did. So I just kind of fell into it because that, those are the languages I liked the best. Mm-hmm. I wanted to study. And it seemed like studying Near Eastern languages, biblical studies, and, and the history of the Near East was much more appealing than the study of, say, Indo-European culture. And where does the field stand now? I mean, is it a good time to, to get into studying Semitic languages and and Semitics, I mean, is this a great time for people to be doing this kind of research and work or is the field struggling in some way at this current moment? In some sense, it's a great time because we know more than ever. We're always learning more. It's a great time to study. If you want to study modern South Arabian or modern Aramaic or or modern dialects, there's lots of work going on that's really interesting and wonderful. 
Um, at the same time, I think that uh, the humanities in general are struggling, and there are certainly jobs uh, in the humanities, and there were. So academia, I'm not so sure. But the field itself, I would say, yes, it's, I think, thriving, and there's a lot of great scholarship going on around the world. But like you said, it must be difficult to actually do field work at this time. You know, if you're going to travel to certain areas of Iraq or other areas of the Middle East, Yemen in particular, it's not. Yeah, to do. Yemen is, is pretty much off limits, but Oman is actually uh, quite safe. And I have mm-hmm. close friends and colleagues that uh, have gone there and had uh, very good experiences. Jeffrey Khan went to Iraq not long ago. And so it is certainly possible to do field work if you were a little bit adventurous. Right. So let's get into the, the current state of these languages. My understanding is that the major changes started coming in the 1970s, if that's correct. Yeah, in 1970, there was a change of government and the current Sultan of Oman came to power and he really modernized the whole country, revolutionized uh, the education system and so the Dofar region where Mehra and Jabali are spoken really opened up. And that's been wonderful in a lot of ways, but it's meant that Arabic has become more pervasive. And so in the last 40 years or so, the languages have become more infested with Arabic vocabulary. There's still, some of the languages are still very vibrant and they're being learned by children, but um, they've been changing because of the influence of Arabic education, I would say. Of the six languages spoken, three of them are thriving, Mehri, Jabali, and Sokotri, um, with tens of thousands of speakers, maybe 100,000 or more for Mehri. The other three, Hobyot, Harsusi, and Bathari, are much worse off. Bathari, I heard last year, had 11 speakers left. So wow. that is uh, going to be extinct soon. Harsusi has maybe a few hundred in Hobyot, which I think is still doing okay, has only a 1,000 or 2,000. So some of the languages probably won't be around much longer. And the larger ones are certainly changing. And the fact that these are spoken languages plays into that in a big way, right? Yeah, there's, there's no written standard to keep them grounded. Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah. And it's, languages change. It's okay. There's nothing wrong with language changing. Right. If as a, as a linguist and as a historical linguist, and I, I want to try to figure out the, the older stages of the language, it gets harder and harder as the languages evolve and, and vocabulary is lost and so on. But in terms of documenting the, the history of the language, if it's a purely spoken language, if there's no real literature, then it's very easy for these things to slowly disappear as, as the speakers disappear. Yes, yes. And what would be some opposite examples? Of what? Of ancient Semitic languages that didn't disappear when their speakers disappeared because they had, you know, written texts and, and literature. Well, lots of examples. Hebrew, of course, stopped being spoken by about the third century CE and remained a very vibrant written language through today. And uh, same with standard Arabic, Akkadian, let's uh, for a while was a written language after it stopped being spoken. So written languages can certainly have a much longer history after they stop being spoken. But once a, a language like Mehri stops being spoken, it just survives in whatever recordings we have. And uh, yes, it, it fades away much quicker. Right. It's interesting. I, when I was looking into that and I was, when I was researching it in your work, it reminded me 
it didn't remind me, but it made me think of some of the Arabic dialects that exist now, like Levantine dialect or, and how these, they're still not written down. They're almost purely spoken and they're changing all the time. So it made me wonder, you know, who's documenting these as they exist now? Are, is that even happening? And, and what does that mean for the future of, of these dialects? Yeah, there are, I don't know how many dozens or hundreds of dialects of Arabic we can classify. There are a lot of examples of text collections and grammars of Arabic dialects, but uh, they actually are a pretty nice parallel to the modern South Arabian languages in that um, they're not written except... Blogs and text messages. Yeah, things like that. There are some plays and poetry and things, but for the most part, they're not written. They change more rapidly. Uh, It's hard to say what's the correct form of, say, Cairo, Arabic. Everyone will have a different answer for what's the correct form of the language. There's no standard. And so um, the Arabic dialects are interesting, but there's this written parallel. And so uh, there's no equivalent of the Fusha standard Arabic in in the South Arabian world. Right. With the South Arabian languages that are dying, you know, just generally when a language starts to go extinct and when it does go extinct, it can be such a big thing to comprehend that I think it's hard for people to understand what humanity loses when that happens. Yeah. So, you know, what are some of the things that, that we lose when a language dies? Well, the native speakers lose an enormous part of their, of their culture, of their cultural history, and their identity. We lose a whole corpus of oral literature, uh, oral histories, uh, folk tales. We lose specialized vocabulary. As linguists, we lose another piece of the puzzle when trying to reconstruct the ancestor languages or ancestor phases of the Semitic family. So it's hard to say what we lose exactly, but it's, it's certainly a lot. And it's certainly sad when the language is no longer spoken. Where does your research stand now in regards to, to these two languages? What are you working on now or what do you hope to work on in the future? Right now, I'm looking at Hartusi, which is one of those three dying languages that has maybe a few hundred speakers in Oman, a little bit north of the Dofar province. And there were some texts published about 15 years ago that were collected in this 60s and 70s. And I'm going back to look at those published versions, and I have audio recordings that were made in the 70s, and looking at how the published versions are and, and what might have been missed and, and uh, to try to figure out how Harsusi differs from, say, Mehri, what are some of the unique features, what are some of the interesting developments that uh, Harsusi has compared to the other sister languages. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of really great work being done around the world on all the languages. And so the more data that we have, uh, the more we can do comparative work and try to reconstruct the proto-modern South Arabian language and then see how that informs our reconstruction of proto-West Semitic and proto-Semitic. So I'm always looking at the new data that comes out. There was a volume that came out this year uh, on Sokotri, a wonderful collection of texts 
And there's always new words, new grammatical forms that make me question something in Mehri or Jabali. Yeah, there's always something new coming out. When, when you're approaching a new research project like this, do you know what your paper is going to be titled essentially when you start your research or do you have a goal in mind or is it usually you get into it and then at some point it appears to you? I think the latter. I think it's always better to see where something takes you rather than have a set idea of what you want to prove. Mm-hmm. I'll go into a, a, an article with a pretty good idea of what I think the answer is going to be, but sometimes uh, it doesn't work out. That happened recently. I, I worked on an article recently with a colleague from France trying to figure out the origin of uh, a particular verb form in Mehri, the, the suffix used for the feminine past tense. And we had all this data. We had a vague idea of, of how the different suffixes were used. But we, as we delved deeper in the subject, only then did we sort of figure out why, this was, why these suffixes behaved the way they did. So we really had no idea going in what we were looking for until we started looking. Interesting. Well, um, this has been incredibly interesting to me. My wife's going to be happy that I spoke with you because she's a Penn State alum. Okay. So I get to check that off the list now. But uh, definitely keep me informed of, of all the work you're doing. And uh, I'll continue to, to research it and read it. And, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Well, thanks for your interest in, in modern South Arabian. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Take care. Bye.